Good morning, friends. It's Wednesday, so it's Bible study, and today we have a good lesson for you. We are doing chapter 13 of Revelation today, and oh my goodness, it's packed with lots of good stuff. And so I'm excited to be here with you all today. A quick reminder before we get started that we are a little community here, even though we can't be physically together. And so do say hello, introduce yourself. Um, if you're relatively new to this study, then make a little comment in the side fields. And you know I love questions and comments. And so do put them in the chat so that I can potentially answer them live today or save them for next week. And if you are watching on a platform that doesn't have that comment field, then you can send Meredith Rose an email, mrose at stmichael.org anytime, and she can pass on those questions to me. If you don't get Meredith's Monday reminder emails, then please do send her a note, ask to be added to the email list, or visit stmichael.org rbs, which is Rector's Bible Study, so that you can get her email address and see the schedule. The schedule is there and up. We should note now that in a couple weeks on March 17th, that is spring break for many schools, we will not meet. That is the only Wednesday when we will not meet between here and the end of the school year in May. And so just make sure you circle that up. May, I mean, March 17th, Meredith will also send a reminder that week just to confirm that everyone is on the same page with our schedule. And finally, I think I announced this a couple weeks ago, but just in case, we have now converted what had been just audio files on our website to an actual podcast of the audio of this teaching. So if you prefer to listen to this while you're walking or driving or something like that, and you don't want to see the video, like actually sit in front of a screen, then we've made that easier for you. So you can go to stmichael.org rbs and download the podcast links, or you can simply search for Rector's Bible Study wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have tried it just to make sure it works, and it works. So got, grab that podcast anytime, and it makes keeping up with all of our studies even easier. All right, let's open with a prayer, and we will jump in. Let us pray. God, we come to you today with grateful hearts. We ask in particular that you help those in our community recovering from the terrible winter storms. Help them to know your presence. Help them to keep faith and hope alive as they repair and wait for life to be, I can't even say back to normal, but at least before the storms hit. We are also still suffering through this pandemic, having passed a horrible half million death milestone here in this country. And so we ask your continued presence on all those who are vulnerable, all those who are sick, that your healing touch may be upon them and that you surround them with people who can care best for their needs. Inspire each one of us here in this study that we may be changed and transformed by your Spirit, courageously doing the work that you give us to do in the world you love. All this we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, my friends, we are going to begin this study of chapter 13 by going back to the very end of chapter 12. Last week, we cut it a little short. I had to do the Ash Wednesday service stream because we were all kinds of a mess over here. So we need to catch up and do the very end of chapter 12. So let's jump back and we're going to begin chapter 12 with verse 12 and just read the very end. Today's lesson is going to be in three parts. First part is going to be the very end of chapter 12, which is the dragon fights on earth, right? So the dragon has been thrown down and the dragon's going to cause some trouble here on earth. Part two is the first beast and part three is the second beast. Oh, we're in the beast time now in Revelation, so let's do it. Chapter 12, verse 12, we're going to do the end of chapter 12 before we jump into 13. Let's read together. But woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given to the <laughs> sorry, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to her place where she is nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. Then from his mouth, 
The serpent poured water like a river after the woman to sweep her away with the flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman. It opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. All right, so the end of chapter 12 sees a shift from heaven to earth, right? So the middle of chapter 12, we saw Michael and the angels, the good angels, fight against the dragon and the bad angels, that devil, that Satan. Michael triumphs over the dragon, casts the dragon and all the bad angels down to earth, but the dragon's not dead and gone. The dragon is simply cast out of heaven. So then the dragon becomes the earth's problem, and the dragon is mad, and the dragon wants to go after the woman who gave birth to the child. Now, we may remember a few weeks ago, the dragon waited for the birth of this male child. The dragon wanted to consume, to kill this male child, and the male child was swept into heaven. The woman was hidden and safe from the dragon, and so the dragon made war in heaven. Now the dragon's back down on earth where the woman is, and the dragon goes after the woman. The woman is given wings like an eagle to fly away. And so then the dragon, in his anger, spews water out of his mouth to create a great flood that is supposed to sweep the woman away. And as an aside, I'm not entirely sure how that would work. The woman's been given wings and is flying. So I'm not sure how a flood is necessarily going to go get her, but whatever. So the serpent's water comes out. It's flooding everywhere. And then this remarkable moment, the earth itself opens up and consumes and swallows the water from the dragon. What is remarkable about this is that we've seen little hints time and time again that God's saving work, the grand cosmic rescue plan, is all about the whole creation, right? We often think as humans, Jesus came for us to save us, to bring us to heaven and whatnot. God created everything. And so the creation is actually fighting against the dragon. The good of God's world is fighting against the evil. And so here we see the creation itself help the woman, save the woman by opening up and swallowing the water that came out of the dragon's mouth. It's sort of remarkable because the creation itself is beginning to act out and work against the evil. It's kind of great. Now this really makes the dragon mad. And so the dragon turns away from the woman, can't go get the woman, and instead goes to make war against the woman's children. Okay. Again, we see here that John's ultimate point in these dramatic stories and this vision and this letter to the seven churches is to remind them that the world is hard, that there is true evil, that they will experience pain and heartbreak and perhaps even earthly death, but that God's promise is something way beyond that, that God's promise is something beautiful and hopeful and better than anything that we see in this life. Here, even with the dragon turning to make war on the woman's children, which is us, right? It's the people on the earth. It is the members of these seven churches. It's all of those who hold faith in Christ, even though the dragon is now going to make their lives terrible, God's promise remains true. What God has promised about salvation in the end is true. Let's consider this week's winter storm, right? For those of you who are not in North Texas or around us or in Texas or Oklahoma or any of these places, you've likely heard about this terrible winter storm that we just all experienced. All of us around here in some form or another were scared whether we might lose power and lose heat, whether we might lose clean water or water altogether, or maybe we did lose power and heat and water or clean water. Perhaps pipes burst, damage done to our homes, just isolation, lack of food, any of those things. For a week, 
we were all a little uncertain, unstable, even scared. Now put that in perspective to what the first century Christians would have gone through, right? Last week's winter storms were hard and scary. But let's compare that to living vulnerably in the Roman Empire as a follower of Jesus, okay? So to put this in perspective, it's sort of like the winter storm, but every day your entire life. John knows that those who have chosen to follow Jesus are living a life of risk. They are vulnerable. They are potentially at risk of losing their lives or worse every day. This letter is that kind of hope. It's that shot in the arm. It's that, it's that unity in faith that people need to be reminded of over and over again. Some of you who go to St. Michael have heard me say before that you know, Sundays are meant to remind us of what we forget during the week. Sundays, when we gather together and we read our scriptures and we hear a sermon and we share communion, those moments are rarely revelatory, but instead it's reminding us of the stuff we know, but the world gets in the way. Storms and pandemics and uprisings and financial insecurity and, you know, medical issues and family drama and you name it. The world is hard. Life is hard. And between the Sundays, we just forget this stuff that we know. Sundays is when we remember what we forgot. For John, it's sort of the same thing. John's writing this letter to remind the people that he loves what they already know but they forgot. For us, that's where Revelation can actually give us a word today that is beyond the sensational and beyond the numerology and all of that sort of stuff. Instead, it's really a good word to us to keep the faith. We know that. It's not that we don't know. We just get busy and we just get scared and we get distracted and we are worried and anxious and we have to be reminded. And that's really what John's doing here for his seven churches. Okay. Before we get into chapter 13, that's the end of the first section. So before we get into chapter 13, I had a few good questions from last week that I would love to address right now because one of them really gets into chapter 13. So David emailed and asked about the woes because there was reference to the second woe or the final woe. There are three of them. Where do they fit in? When we hear, like at the end of chapter 12, Woe to the earth and the sea. Is that a woe? It's not a woe. So the three woes in Revelation are tied to explicit big macro pain. The third woe follows the seventh trumpet. But we actually haven't quite gotten to that third woe yet because recall that Revelation is a big story with multiple through lines of narratives that aren't written quite as skillfully as we might have in a novel today. Instead, John writes kind of one through line, then another, then another. And so as noted in chapter 12, we kind of jump back in time a bit. The third woe comes after the seventh trumpet. And we've heard the seventh trumpet, yes, but we don't really get the effect of the seventh trumpet and the third woe until we get to chapter 16. In chapter 16, not only do we get the uh, description of that third woe, but we also get new bad stuff like the bowls of wrath. I mean, can you even believe it? Um, just wait. We're going to get to all kinds of woes and bowls of wrath, and it's, it's going to be amazing. Um, but that third woe is coming. It's just not coming until chapter 16 because... We've got these multiple lines of narratives that aren't really interwoven. We kind of go from beginning to end in each in order, but they're happening concurrently. And we kind of just have to hold all of that in our mind. Um, Kimberly wrote <laughs> after an image that I showed last week. I wonder if I can show that image again. Um, one second, do I still have that loaded? Ah, I don't have it loaded, sorry. Um, but I showed an image last week of 
the dragon and people, and then there was this goat-like thing coming out of the water. And so she wrote and she said, what does that goat represent? The reason I didn't answer last week is because that goat represents the second beast that is coming in chapter 13. So that's a great question. We're going to get to the beasts now. And so hold on to your butts because this is where it gets good. So as a reminder, questions, comments, all good. So make them in the chat or email Meredith and she'll get them to me as we go. So the first section of our lesson today has ended and now we are moving into the second section. Section two today is the first beast. We will begin with verse one, chapter 13. Ready? Here we go. And I, John, saw a beast rising out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and the dragon gave it his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have received a death blow, but its mortal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole earth followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Now we'll pause there. Now we are now, in chapter 13, entering some serious territory. This imagery here of the beast along with the dragon, really defines Revelation in the popular understanding. If you were to go and ask someone about Revelation, if they know anything, they're likely going to talk about the beast. The beast is here in chapter 13. And so we need to really unpack the story and imagery that is most important here, because this is the core. This is the stuff we need to know and we need to understand as best we can so that we can have better conversations with friends or neighbors or family members about what it is we are studying here. So this beast, the first beast, rises out of the sea, receives power and authority from the dragon, and then demands worship. So if you can imagine this, the dragon has fallen to earth. The dragon is the evil, right? The dragon represents pure spiritual evil. So the dragon, although physical, is still representative of something that is non-physical, something that is intangible or spirit, that evil. So in a sense, the dragon needs physical representation. And so here we get that physical represent representation with this first great beast. So the beast comes up out of the sea. And as John describes this first beast, what do you think of? For those of you who have been with me this entire school year, I hope, I hope that you immediately think of Daniel. The reason we study Daniel is because it is so important and impactful in how John writes Revelation and how people received the story of Revelation in the first century. Daniel chapter 7 describes four beasts coming out of the sea, and I want to place Daniel back in historic context for any of our newbies who didn't travel with Daniel so we can really understand what John is doing here in chapter 13. Okay, so pause time. We have to put Daniel in historic context, and this is just a little reminder for those of you who are with me. Daniel takes place in history during the exile, right? So the Jewish people in Israel, they had the United Kingdom, then they did a divided kingdom, north and south, and then they're taken into exile in Babylon. In this 70-ish year exile in Babylon, Daniel represents the faithfulness of God's chosen people, of the Jewish people. That temple has been destroyed, and yet Daniel remains open to God in the way that God works, and Daniel receives visions that helps him stay faithful even while in exile. At the end of the exile, the people are returned to Jerusalem to rebuild their second temple. 
That's the temple that Jesus visits when he is alive on earth. That temple becomes the new center of everything Jewish. Daniel's visions and writings become, for the Jewish people, a roadmap, a, a, an anchor in the troubles of the world. Because although they have a bit of time where they have decent autonomy, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, never really has the autonomy and strength and authority that it did prior to the exile. There's always somebody influencing them or threatening them or being the rulers over them. And here in the first century, as John is writing Revelation, that reality still rings true because Rome is that ruler. Rome is that oppressor. And so in the first century, Jews are pouring over Daniel, really trying to crack it open and turn the crystal in many different ways so that they can receive some good information to help them navigate the first century and the troubles that they're having. They may not be in physical exile in Babylon, but they still understand that in a sense, they are in exile from the people they're supposed to be. So now I want to look specifically at Daniel chapter 7 because it's important for us to understand John's vision as it would have been heard by the people in the first century, Jewish or not, who would have really understood and known Daniel. All right, so chapter 7, verse 2 of Daniel reads like this. I, Daniel saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I watched, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human being, and a human mind was given to it. Another beast appeared, a second one, that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side, had three tusks in its mouth, among its teeth, and was told, Arise, devour many bodies. After this, as I watched, another appeared like a leopard. The beast had four wings of a bird on its back and four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the visions by night a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces and stamping what was left of its feet. It was different from all the beasts that had preceded it, and it has ten horns. Now, we'll pause there. Ultimately, the story of Daniel points to the return and reestablishment of the Israelites with the rebuilding of the temple, but in the first century, Daniel was understood to have predicted or prefigured, is probably more likely, the rise and horrors of different empires. And we discussed this, right? You've got the empires of Persia, Greece, and now Rome. So Daniel is seen as this compass pointing in the direction that helps the Jewish people understand their place in history and how they're meant to respond to these horrible empires that are oppressing them. At the time John is writing, Rome has had a bit of instability. So let's actually look at, I guess really early, just before the first century and first century Rome to know where John is writing. Basically the 100 years before John is writing this. So this is a little before Jesus' time and then a little after Jesus' time on earth. The instability comes in the successors to Augustus. So if we remember our Western Civ history, Julius Caesar comes to power. He is ultimately murdered, but his adopted son, Augustus, rises to power. And when Augustus rises to power, he creates the empire. So prior to Augustus, there is no Roman empire Rome is still functionally a democracy-ish. Rome becomes an empire under Augustus around 27 BCE. So this is 27 years, well, let's just 
let's just understand that we're not going to be super precise about when Jesus was born. So let's just say Jesus was born in zero. Probably not true, but that's okay. 27 years before Jesus was born, Augustus comes to power, forms the Roman Empire. Now, following Augustus's death, Augustus was emperor for like 40 years. Following Augustus's death, there were a series of emperors, each emperor for years, and that series of emperors, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero, they're all relatively stable in the sense that they reign for years. We all know Nero's almost certainly inbred and was crazy, and so Nero's not stable in that sense. Nero is simply stable because he was emperor for a number of years. But Nero brings about a lot of the instability in the Roman Empire. Now, as Nero is emperor, there is the first great rebellion of the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea against Rome. This happens as a result of major riots in 66. Okay, so Jesus has lived, died, resurrected, ascended, all that stuff. In the first few centuries, Jesus's disciples and apostles are spreading around and planting churches, and you're talking about effectively at the end of Paul's and Peter's lives and the other apostles, around 66, some have already died, some might die soon, there is this massive rebellion in Judea against Rome. And the Jews, who have really no connection to the first century Christians, take control of Jerusalem. The Romans are effectively pushed out. This coincides with Nero's kind of losing his mind and the great Roman fire and all of that stuff. Nero ultimately dies and following Nero's death, there is no clear line of succession. So following Nero's death, there are four emperors very quickly. The first three reign for just a few months each. The fourth, Vespasian, comes in and Vespasian actually has no lineal connection to Nero or the other emperors. He's effectively just a big military ruler, a military leader like Julius Caesar was, and he claims the role of emperor in the empire. Vespasian provides some stability to the empire when the empire might have fallen because leadership was so absent. Okay, so thank you for that Roman history nerd moment. I hope you all followed that. Um, Vespasian's son Titus is one of the linchpins for Vespasian's power because he is a phenomenal military leader. He will ultimately be emperor after Vespasian, but it, at this point in time, 69, and then in 70, Titus, Vespasian's son, is simply his chief general, his great military leader who helps Vespasian keep power. Titus, in order to show his own might and also to protect the seat of his father, takes his Roman army, the Roman army, down to Jerusalem to put down the Jewish rebels who had controlled Jerusalem since 66. So now this is 70, Titus takes the army down. So for four years, there's been this rebellion in Jerusalem and Judea. Titus marches his army down to Jerusalem, lays siege to Jerusalem, ultimately sacks the city, destroys it, destroys the second temple, and leaves the city in total ruin. Now, with all of that in mind, can you see how John's writings are meant to both echo Daniel and also give life to the reality of the people in the first century who have seen Vespasian and Titus overwhelm and return oppression to the Jewish people, and even worse, actually destroy the center of their identity. Since the return from the exile, Jewish identity had been anchored and rooted in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, 
70 years, 70 CE, the temple is gone. Jerusalem is effectively destroyed. And all of the Jewish people, plus these new Christ followers, spread out, especially in the eastern part of the empire, are wondering what happens now. Into that moment comes John's letter, John's vision. And John has a vision of a dragon and a great beast that embodies the evil of the world. And John's vision points to the goodness of God that will ultimately overcome the dragon and the beast and the evil itself, just like what happened after Daniel's vision and after the exile. <sighs> okay, we're going to take a breath. We're going to take a breath because I love history and I get very jazzed and excited about history. Love talking about Roman emperors and all that good stuff. And I know that is not exactly everyone's bailiwick. So have a breath, get a little something to drink, think about if you've got a question or if I can clarify something, or if you want to make a comment and do so, gonna give just a little break so we can kinda catch up before we go back to this first half of chapter 13. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna tell you what, talking about Roman history gets me very excited. I, I loved, when I was in college, I studied in Austria for a semester and we took a trip to Rome. We went to Rome a few times, but we did a few days in Rome once with my friends. So that we're all, you know, 20 years old. And we're walking through the Roman Forum. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's near the Colosseum. You kind of get off and you can tour the Colosseum. And then when you walk away from the Colosseum toward the, the Justice House, they've effectively uh, dug out all of these... Roman ruins, and you can almost see like a parfait, kind of the history of Rome, because what would happen is they'd build some stuff and then someone would come in and they would destroy that stuff and they'd build on top of it, right? So they almost kind of carved down these walls and you can see a lot of these ruins. And so as we're walking away from the Colosseum, I'm chattering, chattering, chattering about Roman history. Oh, look at that, and this person did that, and that person did that, and there are five or six of us in the group, right? And I'm just walking straight and I'm talking, talking, talking about all this different stuff. And finally I pause and I turn around. All my friends are 50 yards behind me sitting on a rock drinking. And I'm there just talking to myself in the Roman Forum. And hopefully that's not what just happened here. <laughs> okay, so let's keep moving on. And if you've got some questions or anything, you know, post those and we'll get to them. So as I noted, the reality of the Roman Empire weighs very heavily on what John is writing. We see this vision cast here for those early Christ followers as being a vision that is meant to be hopeful. It acknowledges that life is hard in a very explicit way. If we look at verses 9 and 10, we see that John does not mince words. Okay, in the end of this first half of chapter 13, John writes, let anyone who has an ear listen. This is for the Christians, right? This is verse 9. Verse 10 says, if you are to be taken captive, into captivity you go. If you kill with the sword, with the sword you must be killed. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. John does not hold back here. John says, if you are faithful as you are supposed to be, then you will probably be taken into captivity. And into captivity you go. If you try and fight back physically, you're almost certainly going to be killed because Rome is just incredibly strong. And you are called to be a faithful saint enduring all of this hardship, and we know what John thinks, even unto death itself, because God wins in the end. And whatever pain we suffer here in this world is completely worth the reward 
that God promises in the end. All right, we are now at the end of chapter, uh, the second section of today's lesson, the end of the first half of chapter 13. Now we're going to get into the final section of today's study, the second beast. Here we go. Starting at verse 11. Then I, John, saw another beast that rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf. And it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound had been healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of all. And by the signs that it is allowed to perform on behalf of the beast, it deceives the inhabitants of earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that has been wounded by the sword and yet lived. Okay. There are multiple ways we can attack this passage. And so... Hang with me, I will try to be as clear as possible. But it it gets confusing for me too. So the second beast is an extension of the first beast, okay? The idea here is pretty simple. If you imagine the Roman Empire, the first beast is clear. The first beast is the emperor. But of course, Rome is so sprawling and so big, and communications certainly not like they are today, The emperor, that first beast, needs emissaries, needs leaders who are regional or even city leaders to represent him to the people. And so, just like we do today, there are tiers of leaders. You've got the emperor at the top, and then you've got regional leaders like governors. We know this, right? Pontius Pilate, right? Governor of Judea. Those governors rule over large swaths, almost like states in the Roman Empire. And then, of course, those governors have people who answer to them who would be the local leaders, the magistrates and the others who represent Rome within a single local community. This tiered system is described by John as first beasts and second beasts. Why the second beast? On the one hand, you can say that any Roman leader who has completely subscribed to the emperor is also evil, right? Representative of the evil of the world, and they are, in a sense, a lesser beast. But it's not quite that simple. The beasts are powered by, are nurtured and inspired by the dragon, right? The evil in the world. When those second beasts, those governors, become ambitious, the way that they express their ambition, trying to rise up in the ranks, is by encouraging, demanding worship of the emperor, of the first beast. And so we see here what John writes, that the second beast can perform signs And that that second beast, on behalf of the first beast, deceives the inhabitants of the earth, telling them to make images and to wound them to show that they have lived. That's, that's, pause there and pull that aside. These secondary beasts, these governors, they would jockey to erect temples and statues and idols in order to increase the worship of the emperor within their own regions or communities. In other words, how they got promoted was currying favor from the emperor. How they curried favor was making their region the most faithful worshipers of the emperor as they could be. So what you have here is that these local leaders would not only erect temples and statues, but would demand that people worship in those temples to worship those statues that represented the emperor's divinity. These statues and temples grew grander and grander as time progressed. 
And the influence of these local leaders forcing their subjects to worship there grew harder and harder. What began as you should became you must, which left the early Christians in a real bind. If we look at here, if we look at verse 14, oh, I'm sorry, not verse 14. We have, oh, give me one second. I have to turn back to the passage because there's a phrase in here that I wanted to make sure I, I read to you and I didn't copy it into my notes. Um, if you look at verse 16, that second beast says, It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that none can buy or sell who does not have the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. What that passage actually means is the demand of worship in these pagan temples to the Roman emperors became necessary for the citizens in these little towns and regions to be able to trade. Put another way, rather than it being strongly encouraged, what happened in many of these areas and likely in Western Turkey, Asia Minor, where the seven churches of Asia are, if you wanted to sell in the marketplace or buy in the marketplace, which was just about the only way that you could make a living, you actually had to go and worship in order to receive a mark that you had indeed worshipped so that you could have access to the market. Those marks, hands, forehead, are meant to reflect the seals that John references earlier in Revelation. The mark of the beast, right? Stuff that we hear, phrases we know from Revelation, are actually the physical marks that people would receive after having successfully worshipped the emperor to then go about their business, to sell or buy or exchange in the marketplace. As I noted, this left Christians in a bind. Christians knew they weren't supposed to worship idols. And it's not just Christians, right? It's Jews. It's, you know, idol worship is not okay. These early Christians knew that they were not supposed to worship in these temples. And yet, if they had to worship in the temples in order to make a living, what were they supposed to do? John here in Revelation makes it very clear that they're not supposed to. And if they suffer hardship, even death, because of their refusal to worship, their reward will be great in heaven. Put yourself in the position of the people here in the first century. How many of us have been in a situation in our lives where we know what is right or wrong, we know what we should or shouldn't do, and yet the option of the stuff we shouldn't do is helpful, expedient, easier, helps us be more successful, you name it. And you know it's not that bad, right? I mean, yeah, it's wrong in the technical sense, but it's not like murder. It's simple, and it's momentary, and it's small. And so we make choices that are wrong, but we make those choices you know, acknowledging that, yeah, yeah, it's just for now, right? We're only going to do that thing this one time. Or we're only going to do that wrong thing just to achieve this goal, and then we'll stop. We won't do that again. We'll do the right stuff. In the first century, I have to imagine, there were plenty of good people, Jews, Christians, you name it, who said, you know, I, I have to feed my kids. I have to be able to repair my home. So I will go and I will pretend to worship in the Roman temples to do whatever I'm supposed to do with these Roman statues just to get the mark I need to get so I can go to the market and I can exchange and trade and stay alive and keep my kids alive and all that good stuff. I would sympathize 
with a desire to just go through the motions, knowing it doesn't matter, it doesn't mean anything, telling God, like walking into the temple and saying, God, I don't believe any of this. I, I'm not going to fall victim to any of these things, but I got to do it in order to keep my livelihood. I understand where this comes from because how many of us have done the same thing here? All of us have done that thing. Okay, so just in case any of you are sitting there thinking like, I don't do that. Nope, we all do it. I do it. You do it. Everybody at some level does something that they know isn't quite what they're supposed to do. Some people do a lot more of those things than others, but every one of us at some point in our lives and likely many points in our lives, we've made decisions that are, I don't know, worldly, savvy, politically expedient, or what have you. And looking back, we know we really shouldn't have done that. I mean, our integrity is at risk for having made those decisions, but maybe it affords us the ability to do more, better in the future. And so do we justify our actions? Do we say that the ends justify the means? You know, if we make a few sketchy decisions in business, and yet in the end, we land in a good place making a lot of money, and so we're able to give a lot of money away, isn't that good? Didn't we do a good thing by having more money that we can give away? John here in Revelation would likely say no. John makes very clear here that being faithful saints means that we, at every turn and in every option, choose to do right, choose the pain and the heartbreak and the struggle over the easy and the expedient and the successful because even if we act like we don't believe what we do. Or even if we do bad things knowing that they're bad and knowing we want to be good, it's very risky. I would venture a guess that almost everyone here in this study does something out of habit that if we were to look objectively, we would be ashamed of. Every one of us here has made choices that has guided us to this point in our lives and the choices we made along the way in hindsight are not the good choices. Yes, we can justify ourselves and of course we can repent. But John's point here to me, is that the risk of taking the little easy route, of cutting a corner, of shaving off a little effort, or preventing a little hardship, is ultimately so risky that we shouldn't. It is too easy for us to be so tempted by what the world offers us, a bigger house, a better car, more security, an extra vacation home, faster flights and better hotels, and you name it. It is so risky that we may get to a point in our lives where all of those things become a habit, that it's wisest just simply to not take that path in the first place. Ooh. This is a hard word for us. I will not beat around the bush. This is one of those messages where we can close off our ears and we can simply close our eyes and we can say we are as good as we can be and we're not perfect and nobody's perfect and all of that is true. But it is Lent and I think this week's study might be a decent encouragement for us to consider what repentance actually looks like. That it's not just simply acknowledging that we made choices that we might not like or be proud of, but it's actually repairing. It is working to seek 
a rebalancing. If we have gained because of sketchy choices, how do we repent? How do we work toward a repairing of what we broke so that moving forward, we can do so with confidence and with clarity, cleansed of what it is that we did. God knows we're not perfect. God also knows that we can, as the best of us, seek to be better, try better, do better. And that's really what repentance is all about, allowing us to work at improving who we are and the choices that we make so that we can be the faithful saints God made us to be. Okay, so we'll, I'll get out of my pulpit and let's look at the very end of chapter 13 because I think it's stuff that you're going to want to know. So, the very last verse of chapter 13, we see, chapter, uh, verse 18, John says to his faithful people, this, everything that he had talked about, choices to be made and all the other stuff, this calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. Woohoo, here we are. Perhaps the most famous idea in the entire book of Revelation, the number of the beast, 666. Let's talk about what this is. So, I've mentioned numerology multiple times here, and numerology is important. John uses the tradition of holy numbers and sacred numbers against evil numbers, and we've talked before, holy numbers, 3, 7, 12, 40, all of that. Evil numbers include 6. Here we have a kind of remarkable play on words. 666. In Greek and in Hebrew, represent the name of a person. And John here plays with numbers because the name of the person in Hebrew and Greek is actually Nero Caesar or Nero Caesar. So 666 is Nero's actual number. Total, well, I'll say coincidence, but whatever. It is remarkable that Nero Caesar, Nero's name, formal name, actually totals 666. Now, you will likely ask, what in the world, how can a name total a number? I will try to explain this as clearly as possible. Let's begin with a very foundational idea. In Hebrew and in Greek, there are no numbers separate from alphabetical characters. So in English, we've got the alphabet, A through Z, and we also have numbers that are unique characters. One, two, three, right? Those are not letters. In Hebrew and Greek, there are no separate numbers. Instead, letters represent numbers. So if you think about it, letters in Hebrew, let's stick with Greek because that's what this is written in. If you look at A equals one, B equals two, and so forth, you can establish a chart of which letters equal which numbers. Because think about this, if you go A for the first nine letters, one through nine, each letter equals a single digit. And it's not directly corresponding to English, right? The Greek alphabet, any of us who had to you know, learn the Greek alphabet in college, um, we know that the Greek alphabet is not a perfect one-to-one -one with English alphabet. So if you go through the first nine Greek letters, you see single digits that correspond to those letters. Then you jump to double digits. But of course, you don't need for double digits to be every single number, 10, 11, 12, 13. You don't. You simply need 10, 20, 30, 40, right? Because as we know with Roman numerals, when you put two letters together, they add or subtract from one another in order to equal another number. 
So if you put a 1 and a 10 together, actually it would be a 10 and a 1 together, you would get 11. So you don't need 11. You need just 10, and then you put the number 1 letter next to it. Okay, that all makes sense? Once you get through the 10s, you get through the 100s. So you can take the whole Greek alphabet and express numbers by using 1s, 10s, and 100s added together to create a greater sum. When you actually spell out Nero Caesar in Greek, Nero Caesar, you actually equal 666. So I played around with this and I, I did my own name. My own name comes out to 910. If you do Chris, right, it's the Chi, Rho, Iota, Sigma, you get 910. We, you can all do this. If you just go Google, you know, Greek letters and numbers, I think is what I Googled, you can see these charts. And so you can kind of see names don't necessarily translate properly between Greek and English. And so it's kind of a, a little bit of an art, not a science but Nero happens to be 666. So, interestingly about Nero is that John uses his actual name to make an explicit connection between Nero and the beast. Why this is important, and you may say to yourself, isn't Nero dead? Yes, Nero is dead, but there was a reference at the very end of chapter 13, um, as the beast deceives its inhabitants, it tells them, I'm sorry, this is verse 14, it tells them to make an image for the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. There was a question in the first century of whether Nero actually died. Or if Nero died, did he come back from the dead? Or did he just never die and is still alive and is influencing behind the scenes? They're all, it was kind of one of those conspiracy theories back in the first century. This idea of having been killed and raised from the dead is not new to Christianity. Rome inherited this idea from previous empires, and actually it's one of the reasons why Jesus immediately was understood as having died and come back from the dead, which is Son of God, because there were plenty of empires whose leaders claimed a similar idea. They didn't die. Ah, they didn't stay dead, but instead they were resurrected. You get this idea, I mean, easily as far back as ancient Egypt, where each new pharaoh was they didn't use this term, but sort of a, a reincarnation of the Son of God, right? So each Pharaoh became the new Son of God, but it's not like it's a different Son, it's just the same Son reincarnated or resurrected. And so Rome had kind of done the same thing. And so as John writes about the beast coming up, right, he wrote about that wound that looked like a death blow, but the head was still alive. So there is this sense within first century Rome that their emperors were supernatural, were part divine or divine, and that they actually didn't die or stay dead one way or the other. It's hard to draw that through line, and it's something that isn't that important to understand, except Nero conveniently equals a big evil number and so even though Nero may or may not be dead at this point, I mean, Nero is dead, John uses that name because it happens to equal this like extra evil number, right? Six is an evil number, 666, super extra evil. And so John uses it to his advantage to continue to draw straight lines and connect the dots between Rome and the evil in his vision, the dragon and the beasts. And so with that, we are done with chapter 13. Uh, I'm really glad to see you all here that we've got power and everything is kind of normal again-ish. Um, I hope that you all have a wonderful week, that you have survived this winter storm as best you can. And I look forward to seeing you back here next week. And a reminder that March 17th, a couple weeks, 
we will not meet. And Meredith will send that email out there. If you've got comments or questions, if you are watching this on demand, make them in the comment thread, send Meredith an email, and we'll be back together again. God bless you all. Bye.